Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and with me today are Jack Horgan-Jones and Jennifer Bray. Jen, some of our overseas listeners may not be aware that this is always a very special week in Irish politics when basically the whole government essentially leaves the country, and it's not because of a coup d'etat. It's to bring bowls of shamrock around the world to anyone who wants one, and presumably some who don't either. Yes, no coup d'etat, um, but uh, you're right, it's it's St. Patrick's Day week. It's traditionally the week in which all the ministers... Uh, travel across the globe. And actually this year is one of the, I think, one of the most extensive programmes of travel. So we have ministers travelling to 74 cities, I think it is, in 44 countries. Um, we know Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, he's over in Washington, D.C. There's that traditional visit to the White House, the Shamrock Ceremony with the U.S. President Joe Biden. Uh, the Taunish of Michal Martin has been in New York over the last couple of days. He'll be travelling to Boston, I think, Eamon Ryan's in Singapore, Hong Kong and China. Uh, the Finance Minister, Michael McGrath, in Chicago and Toronto, etc., etc. Simon Coveney's in Australia. Really, the point I'm trying to make is they are far flung out across the globe, um, selling the Irish, uh, how would I say, flying the Irish flag, wearing the green jersey. And so who's running the country? Uh, me and Jack. Good. And Mary Butler, who is the designated survivor minister okay. who stayed in Dublin. Mary Butler is, is running the country. That, that That's a good sign anyway, I think. Jack, there used to be a time when people used to give off about this as if these were all these fantastic jollies that all these ministers were off on in five-star hotels. And maybe they were at some point. But it all seems like a bit of a drag to me for most of them. But it, it seems to be generally accepted that there is a marketing opportunity for the country here that many other countries don't have and that it's worth doing. Yes, to give the, the derivative shtick on this, you know, um, most other countries don't get a, a showing in the White House on their national day much less in the Oval Office and much less around the world where, uh, you know, various buildings of note are turned green if they're still doing that. And uh, certainly the government is, is throwing itself into it um, with huge energy this year because it has been a couple of COVID-disrupted years, actually. Last year, it was supposed to be all back on on uh, on track, but several ministers couldn't, couldn't travel because they actually contracted COVID in that March wave when I got it myself. And um, then the, the, uh, the Taoiseach, of the day, Michal Martin obviously had to, to miss his Oval Office engagement with, with Joe Biden. So it's been a, a truncated and disrupted experience over the last couple of years. So they're going out in, in full force. Um, this year, uh, I can't remember the, the exact number of, of ministers traveling, but if you take the amount of ministers that we have and subtract one, that's the number, uh, cabinet and junior, uh, everyone trot, uh, globetrotting uh, this year, you know, as far as New Zealand, Tokyo, uh, back across Europe, a peppering of ministers, and then, as as Jen has said, uh, several ministers in, in the US, both in the the East Coast, Atlanta, Texas, and, and and then the West Coast as well. So it's a it's a it's a full court press, as they say. Um, there is, you know, a, usually as you, as you say, an attendant little bit of criticism. Um, you know, is this worth it? You know, the suspension of of doll business for the week, and also obviously no cabinet meeting. Um, and then there's a there was a, a bit of questioning this year, particularly for the green ministers who um, 
are going to some of the furthest flung uh, destinations and obviously a party that has, has built much of its critique of uh, carbon emissions on the impact of, of uh, air travel has a bit of explaining to do, but uh, that kind of fizzled out after a little while and I suspect they'll be they'll be back in the harness next week having pressed the flesh um, and maybe touting uh, an agreement or two, but the, the substantial um, news that comes out of this week is obviously the, the confirmation that the, the US President Joe Biden will be coming most likely next month. Yeah, so there's going to be two meetings with Joe Biden for members of the Irish government, presumably including the Taoiseach. Jen. I mean, people who know the history of St. Patrick's Day will know that it's essentially an American invention, an Irish-American invention. I think the first parade was in New York uh, a little bit over 200 years ago and all this kind of wearing of the green um, parades, all that kind of stuff was invented in America and then reimported back into Ireland and, uh, and no harm into that. But there's a certain appropriateness then that the, the focus is always in St. Patrick's Day on the Amer- Irish-American link Everything else, it seems to me, is secondary. And now we have Joe Biden in three weeks' time uh, returning the favour. Yeah, exactly. And, and, it, and it is interesting. We see it every year. And I think Jack's point actually is interesting in, in relation to the fact that there's often, not often, but a, a little bit of kind of opposition to the the widespread travel programme. I do think that if uh, any of the opposition parties currently, um, particularly to the left, maybe if they took if they found themselves in a coalition next time, I do think they also would go. I think that if there was a decision not to, there would be backlash because it's an extremely valuable programme of events, realistically. I mean, it's hard to imagine another country that has that kind of reach and is so welcomed. A part of that trip this week, and, and our colleague Pat Leahy is over there, is going into, you know, the, the Oval Office and watching um, the Taoiseach of the day, talk to the, the president of the day about matters of the day. Um, and then to the Shamrock ceremony, um, Capitol Hill, all that kind of stuff. And I remember being over there one year um, for the trip, an American journalist saying to me, like, you guys don't have any idea like how rare this is that, you know, a contingent is invited over every single year for this massive big deal. And they were saying it doesn't happen. Like even when we were in the press room where you've got, you know, the the lecturing that everybody's so familiar with. Um, and that could have stayed with me because I, that, that's true. Um, but yeah, like it's an interesting one. And I think then in terms of returning the favour, in, in terms of that kind of bilateral relationship, but then we know that Joe Biden is coming over to Ireland. So this was confirmed, interestingly, when Irish ministers were over on American soil in the last couple of days. Um, I think it was Rishi Sunak they were um, speaking and, and Rishi Sunak said, you know, he'd be very welcome over and he said he intends to travel to Northern Ireland and to the Republic. Um, And it will be an interesting trip for him over here, particularly in terms of Northern Ireland, because we know there are sensitivities there. And I think it will be very eye-opening to see how unionists particularly deal with that visit. You know, and I heard Sammy Wilson on the radio this morning and he was kind of talking about, you know, if he's coming over to celebrate the Good Friday Agreement, you know, he shouldn't because, in Sammy Wilson's words, the Good Friday Agreement is in tatters. So there's just an interesting dynamic there because I think Joe Biden has been viewed kind of as this sort of Irish, you know, nationalist leaning. He definitely kept the pressure on when there was talks around the protocol um, and and major issues between Ireland, the UK and the EU. So I think that maybe they view him with a little bit of I wouldn't say scepticism, but maybe a, a bit warier. So the red carpet will be rolled out. No doubt it's a big deal for an American president to visit Ireland. Um, it's a very newsworthy event. I'm sure we'll all be covering it. Um, but yeah, I would be interested to see kind of 
uh, how the union has handled it. And, and for his part, Jeffrey Donaldson has said he was over, I think yesterday he said this, it's not going to put any extra pressure on him to to make a, a make up his mind, to make a final decision on the protocol. He's not, that doesn't put any arbitrary deadline on him. But you definitely get the, the feeling from Pat's coverage from America that they're really eyeballing the DUP over there now and trying to like, you know, send them all kinds of messages about a decades long, you know, investment in, in Northern Ireland should things, you know, go the right way, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden is, I mean, it's, it's quite clear that he is the most Irish, Irish-American president since John Fitzgerald Kennedy, Jack, and actually, in some ways, perhaps even more overtly Irish in terms of the way he presents himself domestically in the United States. He's constantly referring to it. Uh, he's very overt about it. He, he mentions it a lot. And as Jen said, he had no compunction about getting involved and getting his hands dirty a bit uh, in the discussions over the protocol and issues like that over over the last while. So, I mean, there is some justification um, to Sammy Wilson's perception that he's not a he's not a neutral player here. And it'll be quite interesting to see how these... These are they celebrations? Are they commemorations? What are they of the of the anniversary of the agreement? How they play out in three weeks' time? Well, yeah, I mean it's a marking of it. That's about the most neutral language you can possibly hope for. Um, you're right about about President Biden. I mean he 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 bathes himself in the Blarney. Um, I'm minded of of Oliver Callan's impression of him, where he kind of only rouses himself from snoozing to uh, invoke faith in Bagara and talk about the old country and stuff like that. And that's obviously you know a parody, but there, there there's something of that to it because because Biden kind of makes Irish America and uh, his own Irish Americanism and you know the the his roots in County Mayo and on the Cooley Peninsula. You know it's all part of this kind of misty eyed invocation of Irish America, which has proved to be kind of politically potent at different times, particularly in the 20th century in, in American politics. I'm kind of skeptical as to how much weight that carries in American political culture right now. I'm not sure that Irish America is as coherent a block, perhaps, as it always has been. I'm not sure that it's as, you know, clearly a democratic block as it has traditionally been. But perhaps that's... A- yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of part of his identity yes. as an old school Paul, isn't it? You know, it's a very old school way of presenting yourself as, as benefits yeah, of the old exactly. guy. Yeah, exactly. And it kind, of, it kind of speaks to a subtext maybe of being like, you know, a good old boy, like uh, not a southern good old boy, of course, but like someone who who has roots in their community and, uh, you know, un- understands perhaps machine politics as well and kind of has that kind of constituency behind them. Perhaps there's a there's a deeper conversation about Joe Biden's Irishness or otherwise to be had closer closer to the day. But what it means in a contemporary sense for Northern Ireland and for the the adoption of the Windsor framework uh, or not by the DUP, I think, is is the interesting question. Obviously, Sammy Wilson was out on RT's Morning Ireland this morning, as Jen said, you know, I wouldn't even say damning it with fame, with fame praise. There was no praise whatsoever. He was talking about how, you know, it it, it, it solidifies the border down the Irish Sea. He's saying a very hard line on the whole thing, much more hard line even than Jeffrey Donaldson has been sounding and talking about how the Good Friday Agreement was was in tatters and if he was if he was coming here to mark that there wasn't much to celebrate at all. Um I think that, you know, the the spectacle of the Good Friday Agreement institutions not being up and running, um, if and when Joe Biden 
comes and whether he is able to to address the assembly or not uh, is something that will increase the pressure on the DUP. I'm not sure that it would be a tipping point or a fundamental factor that plays in. And certainly from an American perspective, I suspect it'd be little more than a footnote. But you know, the the, the spectacle of these uh, of the incapacity of um, of Northern Irish politics to re-establish these institutions is something that that will sting. And I think in a kind of gradual cumulative sense will increase the pressure on the DUP. I'm reminded particularly uh, of a piece of research that we published last week that Pat had um, talking about the, the mandate or otherwise that exists within broader unionism for the DUP to have such a hardline stance and whether or not they have a mandate to, to, to keep the... Um, to keep the the storming institutions from running, so I think all these things go into the melting pot without any single one of them necessarily being a, a tipping point or a particular uh, a particular hinge. We should raise our heads from our own local concerns a bit, Jen, and recognise the fact that this has a much broader worldwide significance as well. Six months ago, there was a considerable amount of debate about whether it would be wise for Joe Biden to to run for a second term. And following the um, surprisingly good results for the Democrats in the midterm elections back in November, and a few other things that have happened, it's become increasingly clear that he is going to be seeking that uh, that second term at, a, at an unprecedented age. And his age is going to be a factor there. So I suspect that as he gets motoring on this over the next few months, and meanwhile, the Republicans, the, Joe Biden hopes, are going to be tearing themselves apart and terms of either nominating or not nominating Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or wherever it ends up being. He's got to project um, somebody who Americans are going to trust to give another four years to, that they, you know, there are these ongoing questions about his his uh, his mental agility, his, his physical health, all those kinds of questions. So, you know, what better way to start off than being acclaimed by, you know, Millions of happy Irish people. Uh, great, um, great morning television um, footage as as a way of kicking off this this very lengthy, very exhausting campaign, which he was able to avoid the last time because he was able to hide in his basement because of COVID. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, it is a very kind of happy, clappy way to kick it off, really, isn't it? It's it's definitely not too mentally taxing, that's for sure. Um, and yeah, look, I think uh, Jill Biden gave the clearest indication, really, didn't she, when she said. Towards the end of February, I think she said something along the lines of he's not finished um, and that she was suggesting the only thing that has yet to kind of be cleared up is the time and place of the announcement effectively. Um, now, Joe Biden has said before that or hinted before that it is his intention to go, has been his intention to go for re-election. Um, but like you say, some there are some questions there for him, you know, and some people might say it's ages to even talk about it, but I think it's fair enough to say, you know, is he too old to continue being present? Because he's, I think he's 80 presently. He'd be 86 at the end of a second term. And, you know, he's had one or two incidents where maybe he hasn't been very sharp, very quick on his feet. And I think that's probably me actually been quite nice about it. Um, but he's, I think Jill Biden's made it clear he's going to go for it. And one of the reasons why she was saying was at the time was that, he hasn't finished what he started, and that's what's important to him. And I think there, she was she was in Kenya, and she told travelling pack of journalists, you know, how many times does he have to say this for you to believe it? Um, which says everything you need to hear, really. Um, I would say you will hear an announcement probably in April, um, but there are definitely questions there about agility, and I don't really know how he's going to get through those right now. I haven't said that. 
like you said, there there's a bit of momentum there now, but I, I, it's certainly his intention from everything that I can see that he fully intends to have another crack at the whip. What does it say about American politics, Jack, that you have somebody of that age who's a front runner, essentially, and is likely or quite possibly will be competing against some, somebody, Donald Trump, who's in their late 70s. Nancy Pelosi just stepped down from her position. She was in her 80s. Chuck Schumer's in his late 70s. There are people in the Senate who are in their 90s. That's kind of unimaginable in Irish or indeed in European politics. I wonder what it says about present day America. Well, I don't think that this uh, podcast has ever shied away from verbosity. So I'll, I'll invoke the word gerontocracy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it does suggest, I, fe- I suppose, a few things, uh, one of which is a, a degree of stasis and inertia uh, and possession being nine tenths of the law. Um, and that, you know, if you can, if you can maximize your staying power, and avoid electoral disaster, um, you can build up a very large power base and uh, not not be unassailable. Um, but certainly we've seen a lot of people come and go. I mean, you know, just to look in the Republican ranks, it's not so long ago that, that Paul Ryan was being talked about as, you know, the, the next big thing and the up-and-coming Republican. And then there was a whole clatter of them uh, in the presidential primaries uh, before the last uh, general election on the Democratic side, all of whom, as far as I can tell, with the possible exception of Kamala Harris, have, have fallen by the by the wayside. And if you look at the polling as well, you know, like any uh, semi-casual observer of um, of American politics, I log on to 538 from time to time and I just have it up here on my screen in front of me and it suggests that his, his polling numbers are, are pretty good. You know, he's got 51.1% approval rating in the poll of polls, the 538, the Nate Silver website. Uh, runs so I mean there's nothing to suggest that you know the the electorate is is falling out of love with 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 Joe Biden and in the absence of uh, credible challengers from either his own generation or generation below him um, you know I think he as Jen has, has articulated he's he's more likely to to be the nominee than not but I, I suppose that you know any any system that isn't capable of of reblooding itself of bringing in new energy and new ideas. Um, is one that I suppose is is suffering from a degree of inertia, and you know there's there's wider and broader questions about the functioning or otherwise of American politics at the moment, but I I do think it's a, it's a cause for concern if if there aren't people coming onto the pitch, you know. Um, Bernie Sanders is is the the first example of this. Someone who, probably from a political point of view and in their campaigning style, was much more energetic than many members of the establishment. But he's also a man. I mean, if he's not in his early eighties at this stage, he's certainly in his late seventies. Um, and you know, he's also a man. <laughs> there's, with the, the exception of Kamala Harris, and um, I'm not sure that there, there's there's many female frontrunners and and that's another problem for for both parties and for American politics and and for the American electorate in general. We'll return to domestic politics after the break but just before we take that break just to remind you that if you want to subscribe to irishtimes.com and I heartily recommend that you do just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. And welcome back Jen and Jack are still here. Jen the outfall from the ending of the eviction ban continues this week. We, uh, One of our lead stories in the Irish Times this morning uh, seems to be Michal Martin trying to change the narrative or the agenda to some extent by declaring that um, the housing crisis, that, that a corner has been turned. Quite begs the question of what's around the corner. Indeed. Um, I was really intrigued by these comments because actually all the statistics that we see and the different studies that are coming out over the last couple of weeks paint a kind of worrying picture about housing completions this year. 
Um, and that could be for a whole variety of different reasons, whether it's the pressure um, that's born from inflation, whether it's kind of construction materials, whether it's availability of the workforce. Um, but there are a lot of multiple pressures right now bearing down on the government's housing targets. And I'm not 100% convinced by his argument, by Micheál Martin's argument that we have turned a corner. But I think the reason why he was saying that was because, you know, there is pressure from within government, from certain contingents, from different ministers, um, to bring in a package of supports for landlords and renters earlier than the budget. And Jack was reporting on this the other day. And that pressure was real. Um, and it absolutely was a conversation that they were having um, and, and, a, and a very tangible option on the table to have a suite of options, basically, and to bring them in sooner than September, October, whenever they decide to have the budget this year. And the reason why they're they're talking about that is because they know they're exposed on the eviction ban. They decided to end it um, from the end of this month, effectively, though there are some staggered terms. And they left themselves open to this charge that they have exposed and left vulnerable thousands of tenants. Um, and... If you look at the arguments, right, which is so interesting, I was talking to someone in coalition last week, quite senior, and and and, and they said to me, you know, I was saying, why did you bite the bullet now? And also, why did you do it when you didn't have a plan B in place? Because they talk about this this scheme for tenants to buy the house um, if it's being sold. But that is just a glimmer in the eye right now, realistically, um, of the party leaders. So why not wait a couple of weeks or until the summer until you had that ready? And the answer that I got was, well, would the backlash have been any worse than, than it would have been now? Which kind of was a way of saying, we were going to get it in the neck anyway, so we might as well have done it now. Now, there's another thing which I think is worth mentioning with the evictions ban. There is another political reason behind this. And from what I know, the cabinet was told last week that if they pushed out the date, basically, if they extended the ban into the summer what they could end up with then. So let's say now there's approximately 4,000 people with um, termination notices, eviction termination notices waiting in the pipeline. If they waited until the end of the summer, uh, that number, now I don't think they were given a figure, but let me hypothesise, that number could have doubled. Basically what they were told was, this will build up, it will get worse and worse and worse. And then we'll get to the stage where we lift the ban later in the year and we have thousands more people becoming homeless and then the homeless services literally cannot cope with that because they're already completely at capacity. And basically what that would represent for the government at that time would be an absolute like catastrophe. It's a catastrophe now. It would be an absolute catastrophe then. And of course, then, not to be cynical, but you can't help but wonder, they're coming in close to the local elections then. We'll, we'll be very, we'll be, you know, in the build up to that. There's a political motivation to this. I really do believe that. Um, and you can argue that that's them saying we just didn't want it to be that bad down the road. Or you can be cynical and say they didn't want it that close to to elections. And there's a number of other reasons. But I think this will go down as one of the worst decisions that this coalition has ever made. Oh, that's interesting. Do you agree with that, Jack? I mean, as Jen says, you were reporting the internals earlier on. I mean, reading your, your pieces earlier in the week, uh, it seemed to be set up in a way as... The two um, financial ministers, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath, if not against the rest, again, a substantial body of opinion within the cabinet that wanted something done. So I suppose that begged the question of where the, the party leaders stood. And Neil Martin now seems to have made his position clear. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll, we'll hark back to the, the cabinet meeting of last week. And I've heard accounts of it saying effectively it was the two lads, 
Michael McGrath and Pascal Donahue against the rest and the rest articulating the view that, you know, not enough had been done for landlords and renters um, and that the the two the two kind of financial portfolio ministers were able to to hold the line. But what I think happened between then and the early part of this week is, first of all, you had, uh, like we talked about this on last Friday's podcast, the human interest stories emerging um, of people facing eviction. But then you had a data release from the Residential Tenancies Board, which was uh, extremely troubling on on Friday, uh, showing that there were 4,000 or more uh, eviction notices handed down in at uh, the third quarter of last year. And Sinn Féin turned around and said that could represent 10,000 people. And these are the evictions that will begin to fall due from, from April onwards. So I think that, that ministers and uh, people around them were spooked over the weekend. Um, they were spooked not just by you know their underlying sense that not enough had been done, but by the idea that there was this weight of of, of evictions coming down uh, coming down the tracks, and this is where this idea I think began to gain currency that something could be done perhaps to uh, give landlords a, a capital gains tax holiday if they were to sell uh, to an approved housing body or to a local authority, which would in turn interact with the backstop option that we sketched out last week and kind of turbocharge that. And the thinking was, look, if we if we can figure out a way, and this isn't universal uh, across government, but certainly within some uh, within some quarters within the government, the thinking was if we can figure out a way to bring that in sooner rather than later, and they identified the the finance bill, which is currently working its way through the Oireachtas, that gives effect to the cost of living measures that were brought in last month as a potential opportunity to do that. Now, we ran that story on yesterday morning, Tuesday morning. Uh, the Taunister was was quite quick to dump on it quite extensively in New York, must be said. So it looks like that possibility has receded, at least for the time being. Talking to a couple of people in government yesterday, you know, I was told that, you know, nothing is dead in the water. Um, and there were some kind of gnomic utterances, like the policy is the policy until it's not, if it changes. So, you know, <laughs> take from that, take from that what you will. Um, I do think that it's, it's, it's certainly more likely than not that we'll wait until the budget now, but it speaks to this wider, you know, this wider sense of being spooked, this wider concern within the government um, that, you know, notwithstanding the the hiatus of this week, that they're, they're going to be really pressed to the pin of their collar, not necessarily by the Sinn Féin motion next week, because again, I don't detect that there's going to be a, a mass um, a mass desertation of, of the ranks amongst uh, government backbenchers. And I think that probably a few of the independents will vote with the government. But like, as that kind of corrosive news cycle builds over weeks and months to come, again, we articulate this last week, there's no point revisiting it, that they may be forced to do something sooner rather than later. And they're not going to reverse this decision. They've just articulated ownership of it too clearly. So that's when I think the thinking kind of turns to what else can we do? Could we do something a little bit early? And we'll see if they end up going or not. Um, whether the whether a, a corner has been turned, I mean, I think that the, the commencement stats for new uh, house starts were a little bit better in January than than had been hoped because there was this nervousness around whether there were any or enough commencements happening towards the tail end of last year. And that's what I think Michal Martin was pointing to in his comments. But uh, look, it is a bit of a hostage to fortune. And it's also, I mean, the formulation of words that is used there, it is freighted with history. I'm, I'm minded of a particular a particular speech in 2009 that concluded, our plan is working, we have turned the corner, I commend this budget to the House. And that was Brian Lennon in 2009. Um, and we, oh, all, no. <laughs> we all know what happened after that particular corner was turned and what was waiting for us around that corner. 
Oh God, Jen! Can I just ask you before we leave this subject? You describe it as possibly one of the worst decisions this this government has made. Is that because of its effect upon people, upon real people in their homes, or is that viewing it as a terrible political decision? Both, quite frankly. So what I'm hearing from politicians, and this has been building up for months, is ever since this decision has been made, their constituency offices are being inundated with horror stories, effectively, um, from people from all walks of life, of all ages. Um, and I think when the government made this decision initially, the the branding that the opposition put in it was... was um, Expected, but interesting. You know, they they call the government cruel, um, heartless, shameful. I think those things can stick because I think people will look at this as very much uh, a decision that the government made. And one of the many reasons that the government gave, and look, there are some some reasons that they, they do hold up to scrutiny, but in the long term, not really. One of the reasons the government gave was, look at us, we're able to make decisions that are unpopular. We're not populist. It's almost like, they're going out of their way to say we're not Sinn Féin or we're not like the opposition. We can take the tough decisions and aren't we absolutely great for doing that and people should applaud us. I mean, that you would expect that as a matter of course from the government that they would not be making decisions purely that are populist. That's a given. Um, and for them to kind of be boasting about it just came off really weird to me. Um and secondly, yes, it is political as well. I think it's a it's it was I think it was a daft political decision because all they had to do, realistically, like my information is the Attorney General said to them, any extension is problematic because it impinges upon people's property rights. We already know that. But my information is that ministers were told, if you want to extend it, you, there will be legal cover. You will have to defend it in court. You will have to have a strong legal justification. But there was cover there. So why they didn't take that cover and wait until they had a package of supports ready and say, okay, we have to end this now because legally this can't go on forever. However, now we have this package of sports. We're doubling the renter's credit from €500 Euro per person to a grand. Um, and we're going to put this into the finance bill or we're going to have an early budget. Uh, and here's what we're going to do for landlords. And I know people will say in the opposition, oh, Fianna Fáil, tax breaks for landlords, Fine Gael, party of landlords, blah, blah, blah. But if they really wanted to appease both sides and say that, that we're ready for all the onslaught. They could have said, you know, CGT, all these different proposals that have been really clearly outlined. And that would have been it, in my mind. You would have still had people being evicted. There still is a housing crisis, but they wouldn't be so exposed. And I think that that's, there's a political misstep. And then there's a misstep with the public who are already, I think, looking upon the legacy of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and saying it's not going to cut the mustard. And that their targets, they're, they're failing. I mean, that's not me saying they're failing. All you have to do is look at the amount of people who are becoming homeless. That's a fact. Um, and that's why I think that. That's why I think that it will, this will be one of the... When we go back in, in this podcast at the end of the term of this coalition, I think it will definitely be one of the things that stands out for me as one of their lowest points. Mm, that's very interesting. We're going to move now, though, from, I think, what is probably, I think we can all agree, the sort of central defining issue of, of modern politics and probably modern Irish society to something which political correspondents I know always love, which is a good internal catfight mm -hmm. uh, in one of those political parties. In this case, it's the Green Party, Jack. Yes. Um, so the Green Party hired a new director of communications in recent weeks, um, <clears throat> a gentleman by the name of Tom Malloy. Uh, former business journalist, former head of uh, communications at uh, Trinity College Dublin and joined the party. And he uh, issued on Monday evening a rather unfortunate tweet in reply to um, 
a post by the uh, the Katie Hannon show, a former Katie Hannon RT, uh, disclosing who was going to be on this panel, including NASA Hergan, the uh, Dublin Central Green Party TD. Um, and he observed in a public tweet uh, that there was not one sensible person on that panel. Um, the tweet was deleted, but of course, this is the internet, so there are screen grabs which were widely circulated, um, much to the amusement slash chagrin slash uh, outright annoyance of people within and without of the political bubble. Um, and he, he and, and the Green Party were forced to issue a statement then on uh, Monday night, Tuesday morning, saying that he had done this in error, apologised to NASA Horgan, and that he had meant to be texting a friend, uh, which of course is, is as apologies go, not great, because obviously um, it doesn't disown the central concept, which is that uh, Nessa Harrigan is, is not a sensible person. Um, this also played out behind the scenes uh, in the finest traditions of these stories. Uh, it was raised in a Green Party WhatsApp group for their elected reps, a couple of people, a couple of councillors, um, raising it and raising concerns about it. Uh, whose messages were then deleted by the group admin, who is Brian Ledden, the, the Limerick City TD for the Green Party, uh, who then proceeded to lock the group so nobody could post apart from from moderators. Now, there, there's a reasonable uh, reason for that, which is, you know, ultimately this is an employment matter and you can't necessarily have people going off in a, in what is a, at least a quasi-Green Party Green Party property WhatsApp group um, because you never know where it might end up. Uh, it was laterally unlocked, um, but... As the the Irish Independent, we reported this yesterday. The Irish Independent report this morning. There were there were more uh, messages, uh, people describing leakers as snakes. Uh, that uh, those messages were then again in the finest traditions of these stories, then themselves leaked. Um, so look, it's it's a bun fight. Um, it's it's tremendously amusing on some levels. Um, on others, it's it's rather more serious for the Green Party because while there is uh, obviously two TDs in, in the Green Party awkward squad, NASA Horgan and Patrick Costello. Um, by and large, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan is, is pretty secure in his position when it comes to the, the parliamentary party. But there is a broader schism, which is something that we actually spoke about quite a deal back in 2020, 2021 within the Green Party, you know, between the, the so-called just transition Greens and then the, you know, what might unkindly be termed the, the blue shirts on bikes wing, um, which sees itself as more pragmatic and is more uh, on board with getting on board with the uh, pragmatic side of being in government so long as, as you uh, are seen to pursue and execute your, your climate policies. Um, and I'm not sure that that's a rift that has ever really been solved. It's, it's, it's become less visible, less, uh, less routinely visible, but again, it's piped up from time to time. The High Court case taken by Patrick Costello against the, the, the CETA trade deal being a visible example of that. And, you know, he's, he's forced a significant legal reconsideration of the state policy there. Um, and it's, it's, it's one that, as I say, hasn't been, hasn't been put to bed. And things like this are, are grist to the mill of, um, of, you know, the people who are party to that conflict and I suppose in some ways would see themselves as party to, to a battle for the, the soul of the Green Party. Um, but to come back to the, the most important point, it was a tremendous crack. It was sounds a bit like the Green Party needs a communications strategist uh, there, Jen, or maybe even some some basic training, you know, here's your button for your texts and here's your button for your Twitter. Listen, I mean, it's not a good look for your communications guy to not know what, what's a tweet and what's a message. Do you know, like, these are the basics, realistically, you know, uh, alarming. Um, but I, I, sorry, I do think there's a bigger issue here, not to be all super serious about it and everything, but the, I think the Green Party have a bit of an issue with uh, 
sometimes with sexism, quite frankly. Let's not forget, let's not forget that Brian Ladden had to apologise before to Eliza O'Donovan for calling her unhinged and said she craved fame, also in a WhatsApp group. Um, He was never, as far as I know, formally sanctioned. I remember Eamon Ryan said that dignity and respect were not on display in that exchange, but I think he said at the time the agreement not to take further action on the matter. And I just wonder, there have been a few calls in, in the Green Party for um, issues like this to be addressed. And this is kind of, this is us actually seeing some of the things that people are talking about and saying are happening behind the scenes, except somebody accidentally said it publicly because what he was basically saying was he's disowning one of their own TDs and saying, you know, she's not a valuable contributor. She's not a sensible person. Um, and like t- like her or loather, like Nasa Hergan, I think, is a sensible person. And she's the, she's the courage of her convictions in the very least. And very often in politics, that this is what it, this is what it earns you. Um, but yeah, I just wonder, I wonder now, do the Green Party have bigger questions to answer? So that's very interesting, Jen, in terms of sort of darker things lurking beneath the surface of of a party, the Green Party, which I think, in my perception, I think lots of lots of people's perceptions is generally prides itself on being quite nice and quite polite and quite civilized. But maybe you know these these deeper rifts reveal something a little bit darker under the hood. Yeah, because like I like I mentioned there, the the party has down through the years had allegations of uh, toxicity was one of them. Um, there was allegations of harassment. There was allegations of of bullying. There were a number of high profile resignations. These these are all a matter of public record and and, and fact. And I remember I can't remember what year it was. I think it was the year before last. That there's a mental health policy group within the Green Party, and they proposed an independent review of these allegations effectively within the party. Um, now, I'm not sure if that review ever happened or if it ever went anywhere. I would be interested to know if there are any Greens listening to this podcast. Uh, uh, did that ever take off the ground? Um, and look, it's, it, it happens in all political parties to a certain extent. There's often issues, just as there is in every walk in life, in every workplace. Every, but however, if you look at the Green Party, it's just interesting that I'm not saying that there is a distinguishable pattern per se, but this is not the first time that an issue like this has happened. And yes, you're right. Like if any, we, we talked about this before about our WhatsApps, you know, everybody, you know, slags each other and WhatsApps. But I think it's a different thing when you are the party's head of communications and one of your um, TDs is out on air to be, you know, tweeting that. Now, obviously, he said he didn't know it was a tweet. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder the same thing as you, Hugh. Is, is, there, is there a monster lurking? Um why I'd love to hear from the Green Party, maybe they could let us know. I'm sure you would love to hear that, all right, yeah. I'm sure you'd be looking for it over over the next while. We're going to leave it there, and we're not going to be doing our usual wrap on Friday because that is actually St. Patrick's Day. And Jennifer, I presume that you're heading off with your green leprechaun hat to the parade. Listen, all I care about this weekend is the Grand Slam. I am already nervous. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to watch the match. I'm just, I just, bag of nerves, can't wait. Grant, yeah. Well, I, I'm kind of, I'm pro-snake, so I do find it triggering on St. Patrick's Day. And I would note, actually, March the 17th is actually World Sleep Day. So I look forward to celebrating that in the oh. traditional way instead. And that'll leave me ready for the Grand Slam match on Saturday. Interesting. Good for you. We will leave it there. So that, that's it for today. Thanks very much to Declan Collin, our producer, and JJ Vernon, our engineer. We will be back with you next week. But until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.